To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. I'm going to invite Kevin on up here as we pray. Father, we thank you for your promises, and we thank you um, for Christ who fulfills your promises. Um, We know that we can do nothing to prove ourselves worthy, and we thank you for your grace that is so undeserved. And I just ask that you speak through Kevin today, um, and that you would penetrate our hearts with your truth, and that you would help us to trust in your goodness and in your faithfulness. Amen. Well, we have a really complex text today, if you didn't notice, and don't have a lot of time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to it. But I am going to start by saying there are at least two really common sayings around today that many people think are in the Bible, but they are most certainly not. One of these is, God won't give you more than you can handle. I think the last year showed us how ridiculous that was. But there's another that's just as common. It's God helps those who help themselves. A majority of Americans believe that's found in the Bible. One poll said that 82% of professing Christians think that's in the Bible. But it's a sentence that, of course, couldn't be more at odds with the message of Scripture. And it reflects, though, this mentality that we're all born with that is just so difficult for us to shake. Now that teaching, that idea was spreading through the church in Galatia. The gospel had changed the lives of many people in that city, but false teachers had weaseled their way into their midst and they were misleading these believers and they were basically saying, if you really want to follow Jesus, you also have to obey the teachings of Moses. You have to first live out what our prophet says. And they were taking those words, the Old Testament law, and they were twisting them into something that they were never intended to be. Paul writes this letter to wake up this Galatian church to tell them that the law was never meant to function in this way and that their real hope, their only hope, was found in the promise of God and in Jesus Christ alone. And that's where I think our Lord wants to bring us today as well. 
But before we head there, we need to remember what two big themes that we see in this passage refer to. So going back to the beginning of the Bible, after rejecting him as king, God's people strayed. When they got to their lowest, God sent a big flood, right? When they tried to lift themselves up to the heights, build this big tower, God cut them down to size, and he could have just washed his hands and walked away. But instead, he chose to approach this man in a Middle Eastern desert and promise him a great massive land, and with that, a massive amount of descendants, and through that offspring, through that land, God said that he would bless the entire earth. So the Lord made a promise, and he made it to this man named Abraham. Well, his children became a nation, eventually called Israel, and to that nation, as they approached the land that he had promised, God gave them the law through his servant Moses. He gave the Ten Commandments, plus some regulations about how to live as a people and how to worship as a people. Here in Galatians, Paul's referring in this passage to both of those gifts of God. He says something about the promise and something about the law. First, he says, the promise remains. Here's what seems to be the logic of those teachers who, will infiltr- who had infiltrated that Galat- Galatian church. Yeah, Abraham, he, he did receive a promise from God. It's certainly relevant in some way. Yeah, but, but God also gave Moses laws after the fact, and so we still have to keep them. Paul, again, he's writing to refute that, that misunderstanding, and in the process, he's reminding them and us of a couple of things. The law, first, doesn't void the promise. The apostle says in verse 15 that things don't work that way in real life. You can't just add a page or slap an amendment on the end and undermine everything the first agreement had said. No, he says in verse 17 that the law given to Moses many years after cannot annul that first agreement. The promise remains. So whatever the law means, and he'll get back to that, the promise has not been done away with. The law does not void the promise. The promise second, though, pointed ahead to Jesus. I'm a bit of a grammar geek, and apparently so was Paul. In verse 16, he points to the fact that the word in the Old Testament book of Genesis is singular. He says it's not offsprings, but offspring. Now he knows, the Galatians did, we know that the singular use of the word offspring could still refer to all of Abraham's descendants, but Paul is reminding them and us that it didn't just just refer to that. It didn't primarily refer to that. The promise ultimately pointed to one descendant, singular, Jesus Christ. He's the true offspring that Abraham was promised. And beyond that, the true children of Abraham aren't those of the physical offspring, Israel. They're all of those connected to Jesus by faith. The promise, it pointed ahead to Jesus. Well, here's why this is so important. It's not just that the promise remains. The promise has come in Jesus Christ. It's been fulfilled. The whole point of what God was talking about had arrived in history in Christ and his offspring. 
Not too long ago, the, the vaccine first came to Columbia, and, and most of us were pretty excited about that. You know, we were counting the days until our appointment. Now that things are starting to return to some kind of normal, we couldn't imagine going back to before that time. Tom Schreiner says, to submit to circumcision, which is his way of saying the law, to submit to circumcision turns back the clock in salvation history. So he says, why would we go back to the law? Why would we go back to that old way when the promise is here? To this promise that comes by faith, that's not by works, that's a gift of grace. Something that came before and has now come and it's here, it stands far better than the law. So Paul first says the promise remains. Over the past um, several years, um, getting around our city has grown much easier thanks to a marvel of civil engineering. And sorry to interrupt this message with a public service announcement. What's this marvel? The roundabout. The roundabout. But here's a problem. Many of our citizens don't appreciate their glory and even more have no idea what to do with the thing. Now, we've seen, or some of us have seen the most egregious errors where someone will come to that and they'll turn to the left and drive headfirst into traffic, you know, nearly causing a multi-car pileup. That happens, but those are more rare. Far more common is this mistake. The driver will stop before entering the traffic circle and then will politely, you know, beckon and smile other cars to, to enter first and proceed and they bring the flow of traffic to a grinding halt. Now, I think we could all agree that we need more kindness and consideration in our day, but there's nothing nice about that maneuver because the roundabout's point is to keep cars moving. It's not considerate to gift your neighbor a traffic jam, this experience that a roundabout was designed to put an end to. It helps no one to turn those wonders of transportation designed back into four-way stops, and that's what it does. But what happens is we make those intersections into something they were never meant to be. And that's what these Judaizers, these false teachers in Galatia were doing there and throughout that part of the world in that day. They were taking the law of God and they were turning it into something that it was never meant to be and they were harming genuine believers in Christ in the process. Not just stalling them before they entered the intersection, but hurling them in the wrong way toward their demise. First, the promise remains, but second, the law reveals. The law given to Moses was never meant to be a path toward salvation. It wasn't. Now, those teachers in that day, they probably would have affirmed what I just said, but their logic was maybe more like this. Hey, it's not like we're saying these things are what saves you, but how can you be a Christian if you're not a Jew? And true Israelites did all these things, so you and I should do them as well. But they were missing the point because they were turning back the clock and in so doing, they were leading people astray. The Lord was creating a new nation, a new Israel, made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people who would be united to Jesus by faith, and adding back in those rules worked against God's plan to bless all the nations of the earth, to incorporate Gentiles or non-Jews, 
people like you and me. So whatever they might have been saying, however they would have worded it, they were still acting like the law and going through those motions saved and it never has and it never will because the law reveals. The promise remains, the law reveals. The law first shows us our sin and need. Scholars have debated a long time what verse 19 means, and again, I apologize, there's a lot there. The stuff about the angels and the intermediary, we're just not gonna be able to go there today. But focusing in on the words, it was added because of transition, transgressions. There are several ways that this could be read, but the two that seem to make the most sense where most people land are either the law was given to restrain sin or it was given to increase sin. Now, if you followed where I was at before, the false teachers seemed to be advocating for the first idea, that keeping the law would keep you from sin. So I don't think that's Paul's counter-argument. That doesn't make sense to me. I think it's the latter, that the law increased sin. Now, that sounds weird, that God would give his people something so they would sin more. I don't know if it's sin more. I, I think you can think of it more like a sign on the counter that might be in our home that would say, please don't eat the cookies. You weren't a good person before the sign, but that sign really makes you want to eat the cookies, right? And shows you how bad of a person you are and how much you need a savior. The law is like the spotlight that, that shines in someone's face showing all of our wrinkles, all of our blemishes. It reveals who we truly are, and that's someone who needs help. Romans 5.20 puts it this way. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There was this Jewish proverb in that day that may still be used today that goes like this. The more Torah, that's the Hebrew word for law, the more Torah, the more life. The more Torah, the more life. Verse 21 of Galatians 3 seems to say the exact opposite of that. Paul says that the law could never have resulted in life. And God gave it primarily to show us how sinful we were and how much we needed his abounding grace. Still on the law here. The law second guides us to faith and family. The apostle here gives a couple of illustrations in this passage to tell us further what the point of the law was. The first, verses 22 and 23. Paul speaks of the law and all of God's word acting like a prison guard, pushing us into the cell, locking the gate behind us, and showing us just how much we were under the power of sin and just how much we needed help being freed from it. We're entrapped by sin, we're in bondage to it. The law functions in that way. The second illustration is found in verses 24 and 25. In those days, families would have household slaves who'd function as guardians over their children. They were less like teachers and more like nannies, and they'd care for the children. They would keep watch over them, but they would only remain doing that until the children reached maturity. Paul's point seems to be this. The law functioned for one period of time, kind of like this guardian, and that was it. It wasn't needed after the promise had come. It did its job, it guided us to faith, not in ourselves, but in Christ, the one who would set us free from our bondage, get us out of the prison that is sin. 
to guide us to faith, but also guide us toward family. Verse 26, right after what Hannah read, is a beautiful verse, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And we'll, we'll deal with that verse more the next time we're in Galatians. We're no longer under the custody of the guardian. We're now free. We're adults. And this says we're even sons. Now, don't read that as a a sexist statement. It applies to us, those who believe whether we're male or female. In that day, many people were sexist, right? That's what the culture was. We've made, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, but we've made progress because, I would argue, of the Christian worldview. But only then, back then, did sons have the rights. They were the ones that did. Only they got the inheritance. But by faith in Christ, we now all have those privileges. That's the promise that God was talking about back to Abraham. That we'd be a part of God's family, that we would be children of Abraham by faith, that we would inherit not just this parcel of land in the Middle, of, in the middle East, but a new heavens and a new earth with and because of Jesus Christ. But we would only get to that point. We'd only get to the promise by understanding what the law was about. And it wasn't meant to bring about those promises, but rather to show us how much we helped, how much help we needed to get there. If keeping the law would bring life, then salvation wasn't a gift. It was really just wages for our work. Life wouldn't come through promise, but by merit. But that pathway is a delusion. It goes against God's ways where he helps the helpless and he alone gets the glory. The law doesn't show us the way to step up to heaven, but rather our need for heaven to come down to us. Now here's a question you might have though. What do we do now with the law? What do we do with all those commandments and rules in the Old Testament? Is it relevant at all and if so, how? Maybe you've had a conversation recently with someone where you've said that you hold a a biblical view of sexuality, Um, and they respond maybe like this. I've actually seen a number of memes that respond this way on social media, and that person says, well, that's great. That's cute that, you know, you follow the Bible. Um, Hopefully, you know, you escort the infidels out out of the city and, and stone them to death, right? You know? Hopefully you don't eat much shellfish or pork. I sure hope your, your shirt doesn't have two different types of fibers. Surely you don't sow your field with two types of seed, and then they kind of mic drop and walk off. Those commands, that, that some of the, the ones that I referenced, they were given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament law. And Jesus came, he says, in the Sermon on the Mount to fulfill that law. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We're no longer bound by those laws anymore. But hear me, it doesn't mean, though, that we get to just live however we want, to do whatever we think. Paul elsewhere in the New Testament speaks of something called the law of Christ, We follow him as a disciple. There are commands that we see come through in the New Testament that we're called to keep, but they're not burdensome. And we no longer have to be circumcised, we can, or even keep the Sabbath because the the promise has come. I'll get back to that in a little bit. 
It's so easy, though, to drift back into that mentality that we must perform. That's really what they were doing there. Even those of us who would say that we're not religious, we, we shift, we go back into that mentality where we have to help ourselves. I love roundabouts, but I hate treadmills. You might be able to tell from my physique, but more than once I've fallen off of one. Um, one of my sons tried to step onto a moving one one time and got thrown back in, against a um, concrete wall. They can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing and you're not careful, but they're sure not fun, in my opinion. They make you really tired. You never get anywhere, and I would argue you look pretty stupid on the thing in the process. I hate running, but I hate running aimlessly in one place even more than that. Too many of us are constantly on a treadmill trying to work our way to God and we're not getting anywhere. Living quite miserably, I would argue, and it it isn't the way to God. One day it's going to get shut off and we're going to face plant on the floor. We're so much better off in just receiving his promise receiving his promise. Here's another thing that you might ask is just what difference does this make? So Kevin, you've been talking about moving from law to promise, receiving Jesus, walking by faith. What difference does it make? Um, Here are six possible results that I'll leave with you today. The first one is purpose. So now that we're adopted into his family, we have a purpose to obey. To spread his glory, to expand his kingdom. Our wheels aren't just spinning, we have somewhere to go. And here's the main point though we're not doing things to get something from God. We already have his approval, and now we're doing things to give glory to him. So we're no longer just using him to feel good about ourselves or using other people to, to prove ourselves to them. No, that's gone. We're approved, and now we have a purpose. Second, joy. No longer do we have to just keep doing our duty, going through the motions, and try to earn our keep. It can move from duty to delight. Because we have his promise, we want to give him our everything, our hearts become engaged, and it becomes our joy to serve him and others. Third, freedom. Because we're in his family, We can relax. We don't have to earn our way in. We can be ourselves. We can be free. Don't always have to be worried about behaving perfectly, not getting punished. But hear me, in doing what he asks, it's not like we're just eating our vegetables or doing our homework. We're truly doing what's good for us, what makes us truly human, and we're experiencing what it means to truly be free. Fourth, honesty. Honesty. A couple times a year at least, and in our membership class, we share this thing that we call the cross chart that's up on the screen. Hopefully you'll be able to get the point of it. You have the timeline of our life going from left to right there. You have the point of conversion, and this combats this idea that as a Christian, the older you get, the more that you're in Christ, just the easier sin gets and the less you think about it. This is saying the opposite of that. The more we grow, the more we're aware of our sin, the deeper God takes us, and the more we need to repent and believe. 
But anyway, the top axis on that chart represents his holiness. The bottom axis displays our sinfulness. And we're meant to feel that tension and all its weight. And it's, again, it's, it's going to get harder, not easier. But what we're so tempted to do is to want to compress the thing, to say, no, God isn't that holy and we're not that sinful, to reduce that tension, to push it together. And what we do there is we diminish the beauty of the cross. Allowing the cross to be big allows us to really deal with that tension. And we don't have to prove to God or others that we're awesome or worthy. We can just be honest. It doesn't mean that we want to stay there, but we can be real with one another. Fifth, kindness. Think about how we can apply that chart to others well or poorly. If I realize that I'm a mess and God still welcomes me in Christ, will I not look at other people differently? But if I think I'm pretty good and I don't think that that gap is that wide in my life, I will tend to look at others with a judgmental, critical spirit. And don't we see this everywhere today? I'd say most of our problems today are springing out of deep insecurity because we don't know who we are in Christ. In the promise of God, in Christ, we have the pathway, really the only pathway to gracious, kind living that we so desperately want to see in us and around us. Sixth, rest. Now, I said earlier, and you might have been caught off guard, I don't think that we're bound to keep the Sabbath. I stand by that. I would encourage you to read Colossians 2 if you don't believe me. It doesn't mean that I don't think you should take days off every week. I still think you should take vacations, absolutely. But read the book of Hebrews. This idea of Sabbath rest points ahead to Jesus. He's our ultimate rest. We no longer have to work, work, work to try to impress him. We can just rest in his care. We can sleep at night knowing that God has always been working and is still working. The message of the Bible isn't do, it's done. It's not get or done, it's it is finished. And if we believe that, we can, we can sleep at night, we can rest. So Karis, I know we've, we've gone through a lot here, but car, COVID has been really tough, right? And if you're like me, you've beaten yourself up, you know, you've seen yourself at your worst, you haven't liked what you've seen, but I want you to hear the gospel, I want you to hear the good news. Because God is gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. We have his promise. It comes by his grace, it's a gift. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work hard to keep it. We can jump off the performance treadmill. And not only is that the way back to life, it's the way back to progress of any kind in the Christian life because then we can get back to running free in his grace. Only Jesus frees us from that performance treadmill. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who can't. The law was meant to show us we couldn't do it and guide us back to the promise. So let's, let's cling to that promise together. Let's pray. Lord, um, forgive us for so easily returning to making it all about us and how much we want to prove ourselves and how much we want to impress people around us. Forgive us for that, Lord.
more than anything, Lord, just drive us back to the good news that in Christ we can be freed from that, that we can rest in your love and care. And I just ask, Lord, that you would be renewing us in that message, that you would just make our hearts full of this idea that, that you see us completely as we are and you, you love us the same. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.